everybody. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, we have someone very exciting that we are excited to hear talk. Uh, Dacre Stoker is the great grandnephew of Bram Stoker. He is the international best-selling co-author of Dracula the Undead, which is the official Stoker family-endorsed sequel to Dracula. His latest novel, Dracul, was released in October 2018 and is co-authored with J.D. Barker. During the course of this presentation, you can enter to win an author-signed copy of Dracul by either responding to one of the questions we posted in the comments, or you can ask your own question and Dacre will answer it during the course of the presentation. Winners will be announced at the end of the presentation. The winners for the social media giveaway of autographed copies of Dracul are as follows. Jenny Goodall, Tommy Bent, Alice Sparks, Emily Deal, and Jacob Kuiper. You guys can pick up your books at the second floor information desk whenever you're ready. And now to reveal the truth to you about all things Stoker and Dracula, I'm happy to introduce Dacre Stoker. Thank you so much for joining us this evening, Dacre. How are you doing? I am great, Lisa. I want to thank you and your staff and Wesley for helping make this happen. So um, without further ado, I will go ahead and start doing our screen share and awesome. getting the pre presentation up. Here we go. Yep. And then this. Okay. Well, first, again, Lisa, thank you. And Wesley, thank you, and all those out there watching uh, and listening. It gives me great pleasure to uh, bring to you 15 years of research about my great-granduncle Bram Stoker. Uh, of course, part of the uh, research was triggered by just wanting to know more about my roots, who I descended from. So Bram Stoker is one of seven children, and his youngest brother, George, is my great-grandfather. Now, only three of these seven children actually had, uh, seven children Brown family had offspring. And so, and, and of those three, only two of those lines are still alive and active. Obviously, my line from the youngest brother and then Bram Stoker's line. All, all the others, the other five in the family have no living offspring. So, you know, we're the ones trying to hold, hold the banner to keep things up, to let people know more about Bram Stoker and his, and his writings. And that's one of my, the missions I do. What I like to do is then take that information that I've learned and work with other writers who are stronger at writing than I am and help, you know, by collaborating with them, co-authoring and writing books. And that's uh, obviously what one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is Bram Stoker, his life, his research and his writing of Dracula. And then how J.D. Barker and I took that information and turned that into uh, what has become an international best-selling novel. Um, with movie rights already sold. So you see a slide here uh, ab about me. While it's popping up, I'll just remind you, um, I'm very happy to answer questions. You put them in the, in, in the chat box, and Lisa will pop up at the end of each slide. If there are any questions pertaining to that slide, we can answer them there. I'll also be able to answer questions at the end of the presentation. So here's some of the books that I have written. Uh, this time of the year, I love to point people to this PBS a video documentary called Vampire Legends Secrets of the Day. It's actually free um, if you if you go onto their website. But it came out in October of 2015. Uh, I'm featured in it, which is sort of cool. Um, it's a neat show. And the other show that, that comes on the air nowadays is Mysteries at the Museum, where I actually go to Bram Castle in Transylvania, and we chat a little bit about the origins of Bram Stoker's novel and Vlad the Impaler. I love cover art, and I've been able to accumulate some of these books myself that were loaned to me. These are all early editions of Dracula. So as I read through some of the statistics on Dracula, take a look at some of these this cool cover art. The, the yellow one with the red writing on the right, that's actually the first edition from 1897, and the others have come after that. Um, but as you're enjoying that artwork, uh, just realize this, the book was, has been written in over 30 languages, over a thousand editions. It's never been out of print, which is pretty unusual for a book. Uh, it's a, it went into public domain in 1962, and it has been adapted in, into over 700 movies. That means there's a Dracula character in over 700 movies since 1922. Of course, that was when Nosferatu came out, and it's been adapted into over a thousand comic books 
and stage adaptations. One of the things I'm now doing, because um, I've had fun with writing novels, fictional and nonfiction, is I'm actually moving into the graphic novel world. I've aligned myself with a couple of really cool artists, and we're actually adapting some of Bram Stoker's earlier works uh, to become graphic novels, as well as doing some of our own original works into graphic novel as well. So look for those in the next year. <clears throat> now, unfortunately, Bram Stoker died in 1912 without leaving much information about himself. So he didn't write an autobiography. He did keep one journal that, he only, that we only found. There's probably many more, but we only found one. And I actually published that in 2012 with Dr. Elizabeth Miller called Bram Stoker's Lost Journal. That plus his notes in the Rosemark Museum, which we'll talk about in a while, are some of the only things that we really know for sure about Bram. The, the rest is speculation. And what I do, uh, especially when I'm finding bits and pieces from different biographers, different sources, digitized newspapers, is put the pieces of what I call the puzzle together. So I found these interesting facts for you all tonight. He was born in 1847, which was known as Black 47, because they had a potato famine in Ireland, as well as a cholera epidemic. So it was a horrible time to have an epidemic. People were starving, starving in the streets. They'd move into the cities to try to get, get food from soup kitchens. They were described as the walking dead. So for a little boy to be born just outside of Dublin, when all the world outside you is suffering with disease, poverty, um, and, and crime and all this kind of horrible stuff because of this disease. This was, you, you know, very, I think it was very influential to his outlook on life. But to make matters worse, the first seven years of his life, he was a very sickly boy. Undiag undiagnosed illness, we're really not sure what it was, but we'll get back to that later. I believe he was bloodlet by one of his uncles, who was a famous bloodletting doctor. We'll also get to that a little bit later. Uh, he did go to Trinity College. Uh, once he recovered from this illness at the age of seven, he went to a regular school, got tutored, uh, extra tutoring to, to, to catch up on his lost time and his lost studies so he could pass the exams to get into Trinity College in Dublin, which was a very prestigious university. He grew to be six foot two and became a champion athlete. This photo you see, the Dublin races, is not Bram Stoker, but it's one that sort of signifies the, the enormity of popularity of the Dublin races when every any given year over 30,000 people would show up to watch the Trinity athletes do their have their sports day. And Bram was a champion and he got trophies for long distance race walking all around track and field, rowing, gymnastics as well. So quite an all around guy. But I believe his athletic endeavor being a champion on the field helped him build his self-confidence. Now, having been a teacher myself, I've seen that with many young men and women. When they do well in sports, it tends to sort of bleed over, sorry, pardon the pun, into the classroom and into the social circles. And that's what happened to Bram. He became the head of the Philosophical Society, the head of the Historical Society, participated in drama and debating, and he really became a big man on campus. But at the same time, his dad, who was quite, a, quite an older guy when he married, started having children, he was working at Dublin Castle, which was the seat of British power ruling Ireland, and he retired. And so Bram, number three in line from the oldest to the youngest, he was asked to go to work while he was still at university, which is not that uncommon, but it was a difficult job. So he really had to juggle his sports, his schooling, and his job as the clerk in the Petty Sessions legal department. And this was the side of Bram's life that sort of developed his analytical side of the brain the creative side, the writing side, the artistic side was all being very well taken care of. But one interesting factor also to, to tell you all is that I do have a record of at least one of the stories he was told. The other stories are more general that he was told Irish folklore, which, and when I tell you this, Irish folklore is not just leprechauns like Lucky Charm Cereal and fairies like Tinkerbell. They have this very sort of dark, macabre sense of, of folklore where all these stories are sort of trying to scare children to be obedient. So it's like our versions of the boogeyman. So these stories of banshees and pukas and changelings and their own versions of vampires, as you see in this picture, is what was kind of ingrained in young Bram when he was a young boy. And I believe that really set the tone for him later on. But that one story in particular that was really horrifying was the true story of Bram's mother that survived the cholera epidemic of 1832. 
And luckily she did, otherwise I wouldn't be here or neither would Bram. And just to finish off this slide, Sir Henry Irving in the top right-hand corner was actually the greatest Shakespearean actor of his time. The big, you know, big stud, sort of like Tom Cruise or George Clooney all rolled into one. Bram got a job working for him as his manager. And this was Bram's big break to head off to London to work for his idol. And this is where Bram got a chance to be in the theater and also do his writing. Now, here's that little bit of proof I was telling you about. The epidemic in Western Ireland that affected 15,000 people from this town called Sligo, where over 1,500 died. The problem was cholera, people had no idea what was causing it to spread. They didn't know where it came from. They thought it was in the air. It's not, not that differently strange to what we're dealing with now here with our COVID-19 pandemic. What it was was actually tainted water that when bodies were buried, when people had the disease and touched somebody else, the moisture, the sweat, the saliva, any somebody's body would get into, onto or into somebody else, they normally died a painful and horrible death in just a day or so. Well, the problem was the medical folks didn't know how to deal with it. They were the ones dying first. The people who were then trying to help to make a few dollars were the street people. They weren't educated. They were frequently misdiagnosing people as dead and pushing live or barely live bodies into the mass grave at the end of the, at the, end of the streets. So this story you see down in the, on the bottom right-hand side is actually the story that Bram's mother wrote to him years after she told it to him verbally. Bram loved the idea of using this story in his own set of stories, which was an early book that he wrote called Under the Sunset. And it was written, uh, this, the story was called The Invisible Giant. And it was all about this cholera epidemic. This story is in the Trinity College archives. I've read it, and it's all stories I'm actually working on, turning it into the graphic novel. But it is actually the basis for part of Bram's trauma. And, and if you have read Dracul, if you do read it, this is what J.D. and I based it on. Now, if two guys are going to go ahead and write a prequel to Dracula, you, you should better know everything you can about the novel. J.D. went and got the novel Dracula uh, on Audible and was listening to it and listening to Bram's writing and his cadence. And I was getting into the, the, the real depths of it this way. So our collaboration was 50-50 was and finding all this really cool stuff. First of all, we try to write our book in a similar fashion, the epistolary style, which is journals, letters, and diaries, memos and newspaper articles. So you're seeing it from a distance. You're, you're, you're understanding, the reader understands different points of view as the story unfolds. Dracula was done the same way. We, did, we like Bram, used real-life situations. Bram based some of them in the town of Whitby, which is the bottom left-hand corner, where he took a holiday with his wife and son. And at the beginning of his writing, Dracula, he was so enamored with the, with the town, he placed chapter 6, 7, and 8 there. He had Dracula arrive there. He wrote the book actually in the town of Cruden Bay. And this castle you see down the bottom right-hand corner is actually the castle that he fashioned the inside of Castle Dracula on. I believe Bram and Harker are very similar characters. Bram was actually uh, chosen to become a lawyer, but he chose not to. Harker was a lawyer. Um, Bram did his historical research at the London Library. They have since found all the books at the London Library just a year and a half ago with marks in the margins. I was asked to come over and help decipher these marks. Now we know what really caught Bram's eye when he was doing his research. And it was things like the occult, spiritualism, vampirism, trance walking, ghosts, true ghosts, and written by real doctors as well as uh, people of the, of the church. So it wasn't just crazy folks. And we also found Mr. Arminius Vanbury, who I'm going to get into in just a moment. The book that was most helpful to Bram is one on your screen called Land Beyond the Forest, which is written by a Scottish lady, Emily Gerard, who was actually introduced to Bram by Mark Twain, who were actually neighbors in London for a couple of years. This book was rich with Transylvanian superstition and folklore. We'll see a couple of slides later of Bram's own notes where he integrated that material to create his Count Dracula. 
And the other thing that's just kind of cool is that Bram was really into science and technology. He loved typewriters, phonographs, telegraphs, Kodak camera. These were all brand new things at the time. And Bram inserted those in the Dracula as a way to say, we need to harness this new technology. Remember, this is 1890. He started writing the book, published in 1897. Blood transfusions were just beginning. Blood typing hadn't even been understood. Mesmerism was ESP, you know, the connection between the vampire and its victim between the blood exchange. They could then have mind exchange. This was a science that people were beginning to take seriously back in the day. So he was very cutting edge uh, when he wrote this story. J.D. and I tried to incorporate all these same things into our story, Dracul. I got a question for you, Daker. Okay. All right. Uh, when did you first decide that you wanted to be a horror writer like Bram Stoker? <laughs> um, you know, I, I really, it, it took, a, it was a, late in life. It was really about 2003 when Ian Holt contacted me, a screenwriter, and he had a, a screenplay that never went anywhere about um, sort of Vlad the Impaler. And he thought it'd be really cool if he could get a member of the Stoker family to research and collaborate with him and turn that screenplay into a novel. And that's when I got serious about it. I had been a teacher and a coach for many years, and I was sort of in between jobs. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot. And so I, I did a lot of studying about writing. But to be honest, it's awful nice to have a strong guy to collaborate with and good editors. But it really, really happened, you know, late in my life. And I think 2003 was was the critical time when I made that decision to make the big jump. Good question. Great. Thank you. So look at this page, folks. This is one of the most famous pages in Gothic literature. It is the page where Bram lists all of his characters. It's the page where he changed the name Count Wampir to Dracula. Look at the one underlined in red in the middle of the page. If Bram hadn't read a couple of books, one in the London Library and one in Whitby Library, we would have had Count Wampir, which doesn't sound so foreboding, does it? But what it does is tells us that that name originates from a part of Austria called Styria, which is where Joseph Sheridan Lufanu set his novel Carmilla, which predated Bram's vampire novel. This was a, fe a female vampires. So we know he was probably interested in the existing folklore, which was in Austria, Serbia, Transylvania, and that's why he chose his name. But then he got fixated on it, and I believe so, because he was looking for a devil. And when he was looking in these books in the Whitby Library and the London Library, it described Vlad Dracula, Vlad the Impaler, as the devil. And that's why he changed the name. But this, to me, is one of the most powerful pages. Look at the very top left, where he stuck his pen in the inkwell and rent. Count Dracula underlines it, and Dracula underneath that. This is the genesis page for Dracula in literature and, of course, popular culture. What J.D. and I did was took some of these other names. I did the same with Ian Holt. Any names Bram didn't use, we used those into our, into our story. Now, if you're interested into uh, this sort of thing, these little notes here is what you want to look for. These are the most important documents that I found as I played the role of a literary forensic detective, digging up stuff from the past. What went into Bram's writing of his novel? What can J.D. Barker and I use to our advantage when writing the prequel? Well, there's 125 pages of notes of his research notes in the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia been there a number of times, you can actually buy these now published. The original Dracula preface, which I'm going to read to you an excerpt from in a little while, is strangely and bizarrely realistic. It was found by a British researcher Rich, in 1989, hiding in the Icelandic edition of Dracula. It's not even the same preface that the British publisher Archibald Constable published in 1897 because it's just too darn realistic and scary. I mentioned already Charlotte Stoker's cholera story, but I'll also tell you that the typescript, the one typescript, which is a manuscript, but because it's typed as a typescript, the last thing that Bram had his hands on to edit, that the Paul Allen estate owns out in Seattle, Washington, is missing the first 101 pages. And so the two of us went out there and were able to study it as we tried to figure out what was missing. And I'll tell you later on what I know was missing. 
Bram Stoker's Lost Journal, I published with, with Dr. Miller, gave me incredible insight into Bram's head and really helpful when I'm writing Bram Stoker in the prequel. The Jane Starter interview is the one and only interview anybody's ever found about Bram talking about him writing Dracula and the wives in the house. I'll give you an excerpt from that in a little while. And then I am lucky that he does have two great grandsons still living. They're in their 70s. And uh, every now and then I give them a Zoom call or a Skype and we chat about things and I pry more stuff out of them. And what's interesting, they were actually raised as young boys by Bram's son because their father died in World War II. So they are very close linked to what Bram Stoker was really like. So what JD and I did was connecting the dots, using new information, drawing conclusions, and searching for truth about the difference between reality and fiction. And trust me, in this novel, Dracula, it's difficult. And that's why we did the same thing with Dracul, try to make it a, a story where the edges are blurred between fact and fiction. You might even feel the same when I read this to you, because this is that an, an excerpt from um, the original preface to Dracula. Now, after this this talk, go go Google this thing because you get the real one. But it's all it all has the same vibe to it. I am quite convinced there is no doubt whatever that the events here described really took place, however unbelievable and incomprehensible they might appear at first sight. And I'm further convinced that they must always remain to some extent incomprehensible, although continuing research in psychology and natural sciences may in years to come give logical explanations of such strange happenings, which at present neither scientists nor the secret police can understand. All the people who have willingly or unwillingly played a part in this remarkable story are known generally and are well respected. Both Jonathan Harker and his wife, who was a woman of character, and Dr. Seward are my friends and have been so for many years. I have never doubted they were telling the truth. And later on, it's signed by Bram. It's about twice as long as that, but equally as convincing that it's a true story. So what J.D. and I do? First of all, I have to convince J.D. that there's a good chance that many parts of Dracula are real. The part that stuck out to me, having been a teacher, but I've also coached all the way up to the Olympic level, and that is, if a little boy is an invalid for the first seven years of his life, how does he recover to be a champion athlete? It's possible that he was bloodlet. Here is the treatise that I found by one of his uncles. Here's a picture of not Bram, but somebody being bloodlet. But in this treatise, if a little boy is bloodlet, other children in this treatise were, they simply take out enough blood until they and then to rehydrate them, they give them a combination of oil and claret, which is wine, to cleanse the body. So to me, it's very interesting that young Bram probably was traumatized by the bleeding, the leeches, the cutting, and probably in a drunken stupor and very confused and out there for a while after he recovers and has his alcohol pumping through his veins. But somehow this little boy hung on. At the age of seven, he recovered and started doing walking to make his system strong. I think it was probably respiratory allergies and asthma that he grew out of. There's another doctor, Dr. Loki Hess, who I'm working with. He's convinced it might be something else and we'll, come, we'll, we'll find it someday. This trophy down here is what he, Bram won as the all-around athletics champion. So how does somebody do that? So JD and we're thinking, as many authors do, and if there's any listening tonight, you'll understand, what if? What if Bram's recovery was prompted by something supernatural? We know that Bram writes about vampires having the strength of 20 men to, to put down, so to speak. So what if, if there was some kind of supernatural intervention that made him become a super strong guy, grow to be six foot two, much bigger than anybody else around him? And if that was the case, is it possible that he knew something we didn't? But if he was to go to the authorities and say, when he was an older guy, hey, there's vampires around, they probably would have wrapped him up in a straitjacket and put him in an insane asylum. So what does he do? He do what, does what Bram Stoker does best. He writes a book about it, and he inserts that information in a way that it warns the world that vampires are real. Now, let me introduce you to the rest of the family. These are the ones 
We have seven of them, so I couldn't put them all in the story. But these are the ones that we did put in the story and that I've got pictures for. There's young Bram Stoker when he's recovered from his illness. There's his older sister, Matilda, and then the eldest brother, Thornley. So Thornley's the oldest, then Matilda, then Bram. And there is the nurse, the nanny, Ellen Crone, who really did come to the Stokers when she was a young orphan girl and stay with them for life. I've actually found in the Trinity College archives that Thornley Stoker had kept a locket of her hair in an envelope. She was very dear to the family. There's something strange about that. I don't really know. But J.D. and I have had good fun with it. Here's Bram, young man during the time when he was about 21 to 23, somewhere there, when he's really starring as a young man in our story. His brother Tom and his mom and dad, Abraham and Charlotte. Now, Matilda and Bram were very close. I've seen letters back and forth. Uh, J.D. had an older sister that did night maneuvers with her. Uh, and, and so they were sort of scallywags together. I've, I've had two sisters as well. And in growing up with nothing else to do, you, you, you have fun and, and do weird and crazy things like with, with your sister. And Bram, I understand, was no different. She was also an artist, quite a, an acclaimed artist. We make her an artist in the book. We also found this piece of artwork, which you can actually see on that plate. My wife actually purchased that plate on eBay. And the back of it, it says, designed and painted by Matilda Stoker, 1870. And it was like, bingo. This is now gives us great reason to have a chapter in the book where Matilda is doing an art course in Paris. So it's little things like this that we get. That is the same thing Bram did in his novel. He, we incorporate reality, real places, real people, real things to make people believe that possibly the story is real. Another cool piece of artwork is this sort of gothic or, or um, Celtic knot that you see in front of you. And if you look closely, folks, that, that's actually snakes. And it's some of her artwork that made it into a, um, into a magazine. I took the artwork and I presented it to our publisher. I said, can you do anything with this? He said, can I do something with it? This is amazing. And what he did was he actually digitized it and put it on the cover of the book Dracul. So the hard cover of Dracul, once you take the paperback, the paper cover off, has got this hidden underneath it. So how cool is that to actually have artwork from a character in the book who was really an artist and really an artist in the story. But I believe she was a modern woman in many ways as well, and she was the model, I believe, for Mina Murray. Interesting, because Thornley Stoker, we had to have him in our story, because I wanted the older brother and the sister. He was actually a very famous doctor, the head of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland. He was knighted at, for, for, for this as well. and. He did all kinds of strange and weird um, operations before they were known. He was a, a groundbreaking kind of guy. He also did operations on people who were insane. So he not only was a physician, but he also worked with mental patients, much like Dr. Seward. I'm sure he was the, the model for Seward. This design you, you see in front of you, this diagram that shows the, the brain trephination, is actually Thornley's handiwork in the Dracula notes to show his brother Bram how to describe Seward and Van Helsing doing brain surgery on, uh, on Renfield when he got beat up and had a brain hemorrhage as a result of Dracula's beating. In real life, unfortunately, his wife, Joker's wife, Emily, did go insane and end up getting committed to an insane asylum. If you go on to read our novel, you'll find some of this stuff. I say truth is stranger than fiction. Very true, just like Bram said his story was. Here's another slice of interesting truth, Arminius Vanbury. You'll see in the next slide that he's mentioned in Dracula a couple times. Where did he come from? Many people look at the Dracula notes and say, well, he doesn't appear in the notes. Where did he come from? I can tell you he came from this dinner party right here. There was a restaurant in the back of the Lyceum Theater. It was Bram's job to have the seating arrangements. Of the people seated at the table April 30th, 1890, exactly about the time Bram started writing Dracula. This guy, Arminius Vanbury, look at his pedigree. He was a linguist, a traveler, expert in the Ottoman Empire, Austrian-Hungarian Empire. He was a professor of Budapest University. I purchased this book called Arminius, My Life and My Adventure. Sometimes he even disguised himself. You see that picture with the little donkey as a dervish, and, and as he moved through um, 
Turkey. He was also discovered in 2005 by the British to have been a spy for the British under the Freedom of Information Act. So a very colorful and interesting guy. I believe he was the model for Van Helsing, and this is where they met. Now look at this seating arrangement card. Look at the bottom left-hand corner. You see BS is Bram Stoker. Mrs. McMichael visiting with her husband, who's across the table from Philadelphia, actually the daughter-in-law of the mayor of Philadelphia at the time, Henry Irving. Mrs. Stoker, Bram's wife. Grusha is the visiting secretary from the prime minister of Hungary at the time. Edie Terry. Tom Stoker, Bram's brother, and Arminius Vanbury sitting there next to Ellen Terry, the famous actress who was the love interest of Henry Irving sitting across from her. Mr. McMichael, Mr. Loveday was the set designer for the Lyceum, and then Teddy Terry. I believe this is the introduction. There is another one of these dinner cards that was also in the time where Bram was writing Dracula. So the information I'm about to show you, I think, came from some of these dinners or possibly follow-up. This is from Chapter 18 of Dracula, where Dr. Van Helsing is explaining to the Band of Heroes who this Dracula character is. It took him a long time to sort of drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak, of that there was first a vampire, even though they couldn't prove it. There was this sort of science battle going on between faith and science. They couldn't see any proof, and Van Helsing would have to say, look, you've got to believe in things you know to be untrue. But back to the, the source of it. And that's Count Dracula. I have asked my friend Arminius of Budapest University to make his record. From all the means that are, he tell me what he's been. He indeed have, must have been that vivoid. That's a, that's a, a, a prince um, who won his name against the Turk over the great river, the very frontier of Turkey land. That's another name for Turkey back in the day. And he goes on to say about the land beyond the forest. And then we go on down the bottom. The Draculas were, says Arminius, a great and noble race. Though now and again, they were scions who held by their co-evils to have dealings with the evil one, a reference to the devil. He learned his secrets at the Sholomots, amongst the mountains over Lake Hermistat, where the devil claims the tenth scholar is his due. This information at the end there about the devil, the Sholomots, Lake Hermistat, all came out of the book, Land Beyond the Forest, referenced earlier, written by Emily Gerard. This is the devil Bram was looking for, and here is proof that Arminius gave him much of this information as well. There's a wonderful, very historic library in Dublin, which we now have a record that Bram actually went there. There's my wife and my son, myself, looking at some of the books that Jason McGilliott has proven that Bram actually looked at on a visit there in 1866. That's why J.D. Barker and I, we had to have a scene in this incredible library. They've got proof that he was there. They've got proof that he signed in that day. They've got proof of what books he actually took out. You can see his name there twice, Bram Stoker, on both July the 6th and the next day, July the 7th, when he actually took out certain books. Here's one of the books. It's called Cosmography, which is sort of an encyclopedia, general information about the world. It looks like that day Bram was not starting to write Dracula. He didn't start until much later, but it looks like he was in there looking at religious conflict as, as, as a, a study or writing a paper or something for Trinity University. We know that he was invited to go to this library by one of his professors at Trinity, so that's probably what he was, why he was doing. They had a purpose, not just for fun, but for something for his university course. On that page, look at underlined in red right in the middle. It talks about Wallachia, talks about Vladius, the Hungarians, and it talks about Dracula. This is his first uh, really run-in with Transylvania, Wallachia, and this part of the world. I believe that stayed somewhere in the back of his brain. So when he came back later on and did his research, it sort of came together. So we can say that some of the humble beginnings of the novel Dracula were in Marsh's library. Again, that's why J.D. and I needed to have part of our story there. Bram went on a holiday to this lovely town called Whitby in the, in, in, in the county of Yorkshire on the coast of England, right across from France. Take a look at that picture. It's wonderful. And some of the scenes in Dracula occurred there, and certainly we followed suit, and some of the scenes from Dracul happened there as well. Bram Florence the Noble went there in 1890, just a couple of months after that dinner with, with Vanbury, and you can see some of the vibe. You've got some beautiful scenes during the daytime, and when it gets dark in the cemetery by Whitby Abbey, 
you, you get Bram gets the vibe. The bottom left hand picture is actually the row of houses. It's like a crescent. And right sort of in the middle is is the one where Bram stayed. And funnily enough, he actually had Lucy and Mina staying there in the same place on the crescent called Royal Crescent. In his novel Dracula, one of the things Bram used to love to do, and he did this uh, in Whitby as well as in Cruden Bay, where he wrote the story, and he wrote other stories while in Cruden Bay, Scotland as well. But one of the habits he did was he'd go and make friends with the Coast Guard guys, the rescue guys, and also sailors, seafaring captains, and so on. What he wanted was the drama of the day. What he was looking for here is what changed the story from going from, from Dover where the Count was going to arrive in a ship, to his landing in Whitby, where he found an actual shipwreck. In these accounts, these details of wrecks of Whitby, and this is a picture of the ship, the Dimitri, that Bram turned into the Demeter, and he set the story, Dracula, in 1893. Just below that picture is a painting that somebody has done of this ship coming into the what looks like the comfort of Collier's Hope, which is a safe harbor. It must have been a very stormy day that day, and it was when you read Bram's account of it uh, in Chapter 7, but it is it was a, a brutal day, and this ship had this mysterious shipwreck, and all the crew in the novel gone, with the exception of the captain. In real life, all the crew were actually drunk and couldn't handle the ship well in the brutal storm. We didn't need a shipwreck in the novel. We didn't need Dracula arriving uh, in a ship, but we did place part of our story there, and we set it in some of my favorite places. You see these steps on the right-hand page, 199 steps. This is where the dog in the novel Dracula jumps off the ship, Dracula, and runs up these 199 steps to get to the graveyard up at the top by St. Mary's Church in Whitby Abbey. At the bottom of those steps is the Duke of York pub and inn. And, and, and I go there often, and that's why we researched and found that it was here in the time that J.D. and I set our story. So this is where we, we set the action in places we knew and we experienced ourselves, just like Bram did. This is Whitby Abbey uh, in, in the time we set our story. So if you do read the novel or if you have already read it, the now section where Bram is in a room with some evil behind a door this is the tower where it's at. And I'm not giving you a spoiler. It all comes together and you begin to figure it out in the last sort of two thirds of the book, you'll see. But this is an image of the actual tower, the center keep of Whitby Abbey before it was actually bombed by the Germans in World War I as a, as a, had a British had an antenna up there to stop um, radio signals. Because of drone, if you look very closely at the middle of this picture, you'll see Whitby Abbey as it is today with most of that tower gone. If you just look a little bit to the left of the top of the tower and you're heading towards that very clustered graveyard, you see some little dots. That's actually the outline of the unconsecrated graveyard where the suicides are buried. That's important. I'm not going to spoil it for you if you read our novel. But that's what I wanted to get right. Remember I told you about the one interview that anybody's ever found that Bram Stoker gave about Dracula. So I've given you a few little uh, excerpts from that. Jane Stoddard asked Bram, where did you get this incredible idea of this vampire story? He said, it's been with me for a long time. It is undoubtedly a very fascinating theme since it touches both on mystery and fact. In the Middle Ages, the terror of the vampire depopulated whole villages. Well, where did you find this information? He said, well, in many libraries and so on, but I found that it exists in certain parts of Styria, Austria. It survived the longest and with the most intensity. But the legend is common to many countries, China, Iceland, Germany, Saxony, Turkey, the Cherchenese, Russia, Poland, Italy, France, England, besides all the Tartar communities. What Bram is telling us here is there are many people in the Middle Ages, 16 and 1700s throughout many of these countries in Europe and Asia as well, that believed the vampire to be real. And we'll get to that in just a sec. And here it is. 
The fact that there was these contagious diseases sweeping through Europe and people didn't understand, most people didn't understand germ theory. Plague, scarlet fever, rheumatic fever, all these things are being passed on one person to another within families before they go outside the family unit. Why is that? People are living in close proximity to each other. Treaties were written about this, and you see that right in front of you. Paintings were made, and this is what they're made of. This one in particular, I'll give you one example. And the one down the bottom, Philip Rohr, 1733, found that there was something written, uh, or, or, or people were concerned, excuse me, this is Latin, Mascatoni Moratorium, the chewing dead. They were worried that bodies were trying to chew their way out of the grave in Venice, Italy. Now, Venice has got a very low water table, excuse me, high water table. So there's not a lot of dirt to bury bodies. And this guy, Mr. Barini, has found evidence that the very shallow graves, over 400 bodies, very close to the surface, just a couple inches of dirt. And what was happening when forensic anthropologists were looking at this, they were realizing that as the body decomposed, the jaw muscles, the tendons would decompose at the end. And as the jaw would come together, it would result in a crunching noise. The people who were still living on the outside, who had no idea why everybody was still dying, were convinced when they dug up these graves, this mass grave, and saw that these bodies around the shroud of their, of their body, burial shroud, there was redness around their mouth, which was just biological decomposition juices. And the bodies were bloated, biological decomposition gases. So their assumption was that these skeleton half-decomposed bodies were coming out of their grave, life out of the living people. What was their sort of common sense to deal with this? Stick a brick in their mouth. Stop them from chewing their way out. This is what this whole treaty is written about. In other cases, like the vampire lithograph down below by uh, Ralph de Morin in 1864, this is in France, they would dig up the bodies and stake them as well. Stake them in the ground if they suspected they were coming out and taking the life out of the others. So this is a general short version of what Bran latched upon in all these different countries. So when he starts writing Dracula, it's like, yes, I can convince these people that this is real by writing a story and bringing this Transylvanian count, turning him into a vampire, bringing him to London. I'll scare the bejesus out of people. He found these other treaties as well. Look at the King James even wrote one himself in 1603. So the, the reality element of this really hit home, and Bram drove it home with his story. He collected different examples um, of vampires from this Emily Gerard book and then some of the treaties you just saw. And if you folks look at the left-hand column, and you'll see that um, some of you, if, if you love other vampire movies and books, you'll see that some of these traits appear with other writers as well. And Bram Stoker, I said, didn't invent it. He simply merged them all together to give his Count Dracula, his made-up Dracula based on Vlad the Impaler, all the traits that were associated with other vampires in different, different parts of the world. He even latched onto a vampire scare that we had in New England in the end of the 1800s. He went to America with the Lyceum Theater troupe. And when he was there in 1896, he picked up a newspaper. And this newspaper is in his notes. Look at this. Vampires in New England, bodies dug up and their bodies burned to prevent disease. Well, what the, what the article goes on to say is they had a tuberculosis outbreak in New England. And the same thing happened like I was just talking about in the 1700s in Italy. People living together in close quarters with tuberculosis passed it on to one person to another. And they suspect that somebody in the family was was doing the dirty deed from the grave, dig up the grave, cut out the heart, burn it at a crossroads, make it into a potion and feed others, or stake them. Look at the Mercy Brown or Sarah Tillinghast, the two of the most popular versions. Bram got this in this newspaper article. What he also got in this article, which was so cool, was the connection to Charles Darwin and him finding real vampire bats in South America when he was down there doing his research for the book that he published in 1859 called The Origin of the Species. So the supernatural and the natural world collide in this one article. And to Bram, I'm sure it was like pay dirt 
he actually used almost word for word parts of this article when, once again, Van Helsing is trying to explain to the band of heroes who are skeptical about the presence of a vampire. Quincy Morris, the American, says, yes, when I was in Chile, we were down there in expeditions. We saw these big bats come out of the tree. One of them drank so much blood from my favorite bear, we had to put her down. So he puts Charles Darwin into his story. This is the realistic element sneaking its way into Dracula. Remember I told you about the missing 101 pages. Any authors writing a prequel to Dracula better know where Bram Stoker actually intended to start his story. And, and I now have proof that Dracula's guest, published two years after Bram died by his widow, was once part of the missing 101 pages. It's only 17 pages long, folks, so there's more out there. Bram's widow, and I won't read this till you can read it, but basically says in the, in, in the forward to the book, the preface, excuse me, that this, this, this story was edited out for length, which makes sense. But when I looked at the typescript and found certain passages crossed out, three of them coincided with that were occurring in Dracula's Guest. Total sense that if Bram was asked by his editor to take out the 101 pages and what is anything that he had to take out, you couldn't leave references to the rest of the story. It wouldn't have made sense. So that's why I am convinced. So you can read Dracula's Guest for free. Maybe the librarian has a copy. You can get it online on Project Gutenberg. But it dovetails up perfectly to where JD and I end Dracul in the same village in Munich where this story takes place. Another little-known fact is where did Bram Stoker get the information for his Castle Dracula if he never went to Romania or the province of Transylvania or Wallachia, where Dracula was from? He had access to a lot of books in the London Library, 28 of them in particular. Two of them actually had sketches. One, the Charles Bonner book, has actually a sketch of, of Bram Castle. And you'll actually see what the real Bran Castle looks like below it. It's definitely it. Bran used, because he was also a sketcher and a painter in his time as a hobby, he used that picture, I'm convinced, to describe what Castle Dracula looked like. Now look at the page to the left for a minute. The part that's crossed out. That's one of the other things that caught my attention with the typescript. This actually shows that Bram Stoker planned to have a volcanic eruption right after the knife is stabbed into Dracula's heart. He crumbles into dust. And then, had he not taken this out, we would have had a massive volcanic eruption and the castle would have tumbled down. But no, for whatever reason, he, he, he took it out. Maybe he didn't want a definitive ending. Maybe he wanted somebody like one of his great-grandnephews years later to write a, a sequel. But nonetheless, Dracula crumbles into dust. Do we know if he lives or not? We're not sure. But I had to find out. Now, Hans de Roos, who is a Dutch researcher and a friend of mine, he actually looked in the Dracula notes. And this note, look carefully at it, River Sereth, River Street, so runs into Sereth at Fundu, between Strasha and Israel is 47 east long and 25 three quarters north latitude. That's the crumbled piece of paper that appears at the end of our story. I'm not going to spoil it for you. It's the actual coordinates. That's in Bram's Dracula notes. Important to me? Because I found out that Mount Israel is actually an extinct volcano. The picture on the left from the Kalamani National Park shows Israel now, 100,000 years ago, it blew its top and it was one massive mountain at the time. Now it's open and exposes actually a sulfur mine. The picture on the bottom left is the day that me and my son went up there. We actually took a little canister and put information inside saying, now you've got to the Top of the mountain where Bram Stoker put his, um, imagined his fictional castle Dracula. If you ever find this canister, send me an email. It's two years ago. Nobody's actually called me yet. My, my buddy Hans de Roos, he went on a much nicer day. It was, a, it was a beautiful day when he went. But what I have done since then is actually had a plaque erected at the location just last year. Um, and it gives me great satisfaction to say that I feel that's part of the legacy of, of, of me being a great-grandnephew, Bram Stoker, to put this plaque up there on the mountainside. 
I've actually been working on a documentary, and and if you follow me on Facebook, um, that documentary is actually premiering this Sunday in Brasov, Transylvania. Soon that'll become available to the rest of the world. Hopefully, we'll sell it to some TV station or something. But it's it's all about my journey finding this location using the notes that Hans de Roost deciphered. Now, if you like what I talked about tonight, in addition to the book Dracul, if you love old unearthed papers and things, check out Kickstarter. My buddy and I, Vic Nadada, have actually created exact replicas of many of the documents I talked about tonight. And it's called Unearthed, the Bram Stoker Rare Papers. They're all licensed, and it's not just photocopies. It's aged, meticulously aged maps and things that Bram actually used. If you want more about um, myself or my writing with JD, I actually sell the books on this website, bramstoker.com, the signature store. Uh, we sign and sell books. We also have Bram Stoker bobbleheads uh, that we put out, as well as other cool things on um, the bramstokerestate.com website. And, oh, but there is one more thing. It's always fun to end a presentation of a book by telling you that it was it was satisfying to us that the book became a bestseller in England and other countries. But it's also really cool when Paramount buys the film rights and they attach Andy Machete as the director. And if you're a Stephen King fan, Machete is the guy that adapted Stephen King's book, It, into volume one and volume two. So that's, um, that's my talk for tonight. Um, if Lisa wants to field any more questions, I'm certainly here as long as you want to answer any of these questions. Thank you so much, Daker. That was so much interesting information. I do have a few questions for you. Uh, the first one I'm going to ask is, how old were you when you first read Dracula? <laughs> well, it's a little embarrassing. I was 12 years old when my dad told me about it because I was living in Montreal, Canada, and I said, Dad, why are all my friends joking? about trick-or-treating in the Stoker household. Will we give them candy or take their blood? And I said, Dad, what, what, what's going on? And he says, well, son, it's time to tell you. And he took a first edition Dracula off the shelf and said, why don't you look through this? Well, 12, it was a little hard to really understand it. But I, I got through it. But I really didn't understand it until I read it again as a university student. And I also read the book In Search of Dracula, written by Raymond McNally, um, and Radu Florescu, which sort of explained the process of who Vlad the Impaler was, where Bram did his research. So those two together, you know, way back in the in the late 70s is, is where I really got my start. Yeah, thank you. Um, along the same line, um, I think you touched on this in this answer. How did you learn you were related to Bram Stoker? Um, you know, it's, it's my dad simply telling me, the lineage, but you know, it's one of those things where even though he's really famous, um, you, you know, our, our family's kind of mantra was, you know, okay, you've got a famous relative, it's not don't don't be treated any differently, don't expect any differently, act normal, and and make your own name for yourself, which is kind of what my dad instilled. I always thought it was very cool that I was related to him, but at the same time, the guy who was a, a direct descendant of George Stoker was a very um, interesting guy. He invented ozone therapy. He was a doctor. And the guy I was named after was actually a famous World War I submarine commander. So there's a lot of cool people in my family that, that I'm very proud of to be related to. And, uh, you know, I, I feel it's my job now to raise their let people know about them, write books about them, give lectures about them. Because, you know, if you don't, they'll be gone, you know, a long time. And the next generation of family may not be able to pick up all the things that I was lucky enough to find. Yeah, that's, that's really cool that you have so many interesting people in your family. <laughs> okay, got a few more for you. Has any specific life incidents, either good or bad, happened that is based on the fact that you are related to Bram Stoker? Woof. <laughs> um, you know, being related to Bram Stoker has opened a lot of cool doors. Um, one of the coolest things was Airbnb hired me to be a host of one of their night at 
events. They do they do a couple a year, and of course this was night at Dracula's castle, Brand Castle, and for a little while we were overwhelmed. Eighty eight thousand. We we went over to Transylvania. I'd been to the castle a number of times because I do actually lead tours there to all the places associated with both Bram's novel and the real Vlad Dracula. So I knew all the guys very well, the manager and the tour guides. And uh, we were you know, setting up for about a week. And the Airbnb crew, we were staying in a, an Airbnb house. And every night we'd get more of these 500-character essays saying why they needed to stay, spend the night with me in the castle. So some of them were X-rated, which was funny. I got a lot of ribbing for that. And, and But we just had to wade through the English translation of only about 5,000 because different offices or Airbnb whittled them down. But it was really difficult to do. Um, and then when we finally found the right people that won the contest, I had to call them up on the phone. And uh, I, we called up this this young lady in, in Canada whose father was a, a famous um, Dracula kind of researcher. And she said, oh, I'd love to come. I want to bring my brother. But he doesn't have a passport. And and this was actually, I'm not kidding you, this was on a Friday, and they had to be on an airplane Saturday evening. It's one of these surprise things. But so all of our work is, like, oh, my God, we, we found somebody. And now the brother come, he doesn't have a passport. She expedited a passport, and they came. That, the next three days, was crazy as they arrived. International press arrived. And I was actually trending number three in the world for about half an hour when the press said, Dacre, why are you doing this? And I really didn't plan this when I said, I have a stake in helping the world understand who the creator of Dracula was. You know the creation, but this is the creator. And, oh, that was very funny. But that whole stake thing, I was trending for a little while. So that's one of the, the better things. And, and very quickly, on the not so weird, not so good things, I was approached um, in New Orleans once, which I love the city, and not everybody's like this. I don't want to give them a bad rep. But th- there was a person claiming to be a friendly vampire that wanted some Stoker blood, and would I give it up voluntarily? And I was like, really, you know, tongue-tied. It's like, no, thank you. I'm not really into that. Uh, I want to keep the blood where it is. So those are two examples. But that's that's a fun question. Thank you for putting me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Daker. Those are some <laughs> cool stories. <laughs> Okay, next question. Do you have any future plans to add to the Dracula legacy? Well, yes. I mean, I'm going to keep going until publishers or the agent says that's enough. So, you know, number one, this this document is coming out about my search for the fictional Castle Dracula. I've got this now deal with a British company and, and, and a team to put together graphic uh, novels of, of Dracula. I actually have a story also that I'm working on which is sort of is is Bram's life story, but as he's writing Dracula, how it all sort of comes in together. And then finally, J.D. and I are sort of waiting with bated breath because when, when we're told that Paramount is moving ahead with adapting our novel Dracul into the movie, now's the time to continue the story because our story ends just when Bram Stoker starts to write Dracula. So we've got seven more years. That's how long it took him to write it for our story to take place, the continuation of Dracul. So I've got my work cut out for me to, to keep going in this uh, in this world, let's say. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to see what else you put out there for us to enjoy. <laughs> All right, next question. What are some other horror authors you admire? Um. Well, you know, the, some of the big names are, are cool. Like, I mean, Stephen King, I, I've loved his his stuff. Um, they're, they're, I mean, and, and J.D. Barker, you, you know, in addition to what he's done with me, some of, some of his other stories are great. You should check him out. He wrote Forsaken, which is his first book, which caught my attention. And, and he's uh, um, the, the Four Monkey series. And he also just finished writing a, a kind of horror thriller with James Patterson. So check out J.D. Barker's other stuff. And there's another guy that I really like, um, David Wellington. Um, he wrote some early vampire stuff and some other mystery horror stuff. So uh, those, are, those are probably three right now to put your attention on. Stephen King, J.D. Barker, and David Wellington. Great. Thank you. 
Okay, next question. We have a lot of questions. People want to know. <laughs> what do you consider to be the creepiest part of the story of Dracula? The creepiest part is sort of the, the power that Dracula has over people. It's not this sort of muscular strength like Frankenstein crashing down the door. It's, number one, not knowing who the enemy is. Dracula appears as this suave debonair, sort of Eastern European aristocrat. You don't know if he's going to, you know, be nice to you, seduce you, or kill you. And then when he does kind of do that, you know, that thing with the hand and, you know, gets into your head and, and makes, you know, the women just kind of like paralyze. That's scary because I don't like being out of control. I don't like not having control over what's going on. That really creeps me out. Not so much the blood or the bats or the rats or the wolves. It's that, you know, almost paralytic fear that you get that makes you unable to respond. That bugs me. Thank you. Okay. How long did your research for Dracul take? Um, there's, there's sort of a lot of research, you know, it's been about 15 years, but that's accumulated a lot of things. A lot of ideas get put into files, future story, something for a presentation, stuff to take to the press, you know, different areas. And, and the sort of file that ended up becoming Dracul was probably, you know, going on for about 10 or 12 years, but the actual, now JD and I are together. I've shown him all these documents. We create the game plan. That that was about two years from start to that to a book coming out. Great, thanks. Um, is there any evidence that Brom thought vampires were real? And I think you briefly touched on this earlier, but maybe you can expound on it a little. Well, it's it's a uh, it's a very good question because there's there's no real evidence other than. Um, what he writes in the novel. And what he writes in the novel is just supposedly fictional. But as we all know, we insert things in there to kind of keep you on edge. So within the covers of Dracula, there's plenty of things, like the old preface that made its way in the Icelandic edition. But also there's the one interview, the Jane Starrett interview. And if you actually look through Dracula, there's things where he's, he's sort of channeling himself to Van Helsing and saying, yeah, vampires are real. But obviously, it could be fictional. Um, here's what I really believe. I believe that Bram Stoker believed that many people believe vampires were real. And he wanted to capitalize on that. Did he believe it himself? I know he's a very open-minded person. It was a time where secret organizations would be involved, like Freemasonry, which he was a member of, Order the Golden Dawn. We don't know if he was a member of that or not. But spiritualism, seances, all that sort of stuff was going on. Bram was claimed to be a very open, open-minded person, and I and I believe at the time of questioning the rigidity of society and religion that seemed to answer everything, Bram was a forward-thinking man that potentially thought that the spirit does live on after the body expires. So I don't have proof. I just have a very good feeling that he was open-minded enough to believe it's possible. Very much like nowadays we see paranormal investigators. Very popular going around places. Some of them have little electronic devices that pick up spirit feelings and so on. Others just, you know, tell us that they're there. Who knows? Thank you. All right. How do you feel about Disney's interpretation of Dracula? You, you know, I don't have a problem with anybody's interpretation of Dracula. I put them in different categories. Number one, if anybody's inspired by work that Bram Stoker did, good for Bram Stoker. He's obviously turned on a lot of people to be inspired by and motivated to go off in many different directions. However, there are faithful adaptations of Bram's Dracula. And then there are inspirations that are, you know, picked up and gone in different directions. Even Bela Lugosi who is, you know, people look at him as the archetype 
Dracula is not, does not have the look that Bram Stoker described in the book. The, the, the Dracula in the book was a very gnarly old guy with hairy palms, not attractive like Bella was, but because Bella Lugosi was on stage and the stage directors and producers need to have a handsome leading man, in the 20s, Dracula morphed into being this aristocratic guy in a dinner jacket, not just simply an old gnarly guy dressed in black. So from there, you go on to Christopher Lee and Jack Palance and Gary Oldman and, and Frank Langella and the most recent uh, Clay's Bang, who I actually met, and the writers in, in Ireland last year, BBC series. You know, they, they, they have morphed, they have changed, but I think that's cool. Same with Disney's, that they bring it to children, they, sp they spread out the, 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 uh, the audience who can, who can be applied and, and, and uh, appropriate applied to Bram's work. I mean, Sesame Street, who would have thought that you've got a guy teaching kids to count because he's Count Dracula? So I'm good, but not all of them are faithful, but I'm okay with that. Thank you. Okay, I'm interested to hear your answer to this question. Do you have any other macabre interests other than vampires? Um, fly fishing is <laughs> macabre. Uh, mountain <laughs> when I fall and bloody myself. Um, not, not really, you know. I really didn't get into this whole world from the normal way. And I meet a lot of horror writers. I'm a member of the Horror Writers Association. I meet a lot of horror writers around the world. And funnily enough, a lot of them are a lot like me. They're not the people that dress up in goth outfits, um, you know, who, who, who like to follow the worlds we create. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I love these folks. But, you know, you think of, Oh, is he is he live in a house like the Munsters or the Adams family or you know what what's his rest of his life is like? Sorry, pretty dull and boring compared to that. I'm an avid outdoors guy. I, I play a lot of tennis, love hiking, love that adventure, that sort of thing. But um, when it comes to horror, I watch it. I don't live it. Thank you. Um, that is actually the last question I have from our participants. Um, before we end, I would like to go over our winners for your autograph books real quick so they know they can come pick them up. Um, our winners that I mentioned earlier were Jenny Gordall, Tommy Dent, Alice Sparks, Emily Dill, and Jacob Kuiper. Our winners from participating in the discussion with you just now are Paul Jost, Chuck Martin, Amber Midkiff, Beverly Ray, and Eden Schofstall. You all can come to the second floor information desk and claim your copy of the book. They will be there starting tomorrow. Dacre, I appreciate so much taking the time to be here with us today. Um, our last comment we got is Dracula has to be good looking. So I wanted to throw that out there for you. <laughs> I thought that was really cute. <laughs> yeah, well, look, you, you, I hope you all have a safe Halloween and enjoyable Halloween. Uh, stay scary, stay horrifying, but remember, stay safe. This is a, a world that right now that is you know, more scary than anything we can write. So y'all stay safe. And Lisa, again, and Wesley and everybody at, at your library, thank you for organizing this. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, follow me on Facebook. Check out the website. Enjoy the reading, those those that won the books. And um, th thank, thank you, Lisa, for buying them. I signed them all, so you got cool signed copies. Don't go sell them on eBay right now. The price will go up in a few years. <laughs> thank you so much, Dacre. You have a great rest of your evening. Thanks, Lisa. Take care now. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah.